Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Today, I want to talk to you about the most dangerous, deadly, destructive evil in the world. It makes even the terrible coronavirus look like just some kind of pathetic mild case of man flu, though horrible the coronavirus truly is. I want to talk to you today about pride. Pride is something that most of us don't think we actually have or have at least to a very low level, but it's more like bad breath. The truth is everybody knows you have it except you yourself. The first thing that pride does, this evil, is it makes you go blind. You stop being able to see yourself, to see others, and to see God, and you miss out massively. Today, we're looking at the great cure for pride, for us as individuals and for us as a society to find healing from. There is hope against the evil of pride. Hi, my name's Howard I'm the lead pastor of Westminster Chapel. Thank you so much for joining us online. The brilliant C.S. Lewis, Oxford professor, himself a convert from atheism, author of the Chronicles of Narnia, in his must-read book, Mere Christianity, he says this. He says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they are guilty of themselves. He goes on, the Christians are right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And then take note of this, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something, someone that is above you. Pride is, it's everywhere at the moment in our society. Think of the Dominic Cummings kind of scandal that's blown up in recent weeks. Advisor to the Prime Minister Did he break the rules? Did he not break the rules? But it's interesting, the arrogance of our media and the way that they've gone after and attacked him. I think of, well, his total, coming to his total refusal to admit any responsibility whatsoever for a rather strange sort of drive to test his eyesight. But then, what about us? And our getting on the bandwagon and our criticism of that, I say, he who is our... Any social distancing sin whatsoever and who really has kept a perfect two metres from every human being in the last 12 weeks. He who is without any social distancing sin cast the first stone. And then there's been the horrors of racism. It's always been present but now rearing its ugly head in America, but it's on these shores as well, the death of another innocent person at the hands of white police brutality. It is wrong. But what is underneath all of this? It's pride. It's, it's pride. 
So pride is the first of three things I want to talk to you about today. But before we get into that, I want to go back and just do a recap. Because we are in week four of a 12-part series based on the 6th century book, uh, BC book, called Daniel. And we're saying the theme of this book is God delights to bring victory out of nowhere. Victory is not nowhere. Victory is now here. And we can take hold of that in times of crisis like this, just as Daniel and his friends and the people of God should have been able to back in the 6th century. God delights to bring victory out of nowhere. And for those who follow Jesus, we are living in the victory of the cross and the resurrection. The challenge for most of us who follow Jesus is we live as spiritual paupers when God has made us millionaires. And we want to start to live up to our high calling in Christ. In chapter one, we saw that Daniel and his three friends, they are horribly forced out of their homeland in Jerusalem, 700 miles to go serve the evil pagan empire of Babylon. But they choose in this difficult environment that they are kind of in Babylon, but not of Babylon, to decide their allegiance will not be ultimately to King Nebuchadnezzar. It'll be to the king of kings, to God himself. So they engage in a seed fast. They, they resist certain foods. Now, humanly speaking, they should have got weaker and sicker, only they don't. They get stronger and better in appearance compared to everybody else. Their seed fast is supernaturally successful. The victory of God, the power of God prevailing. Chapter two, only Daniel, only Daniel is able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Not only that, he's actually given the knowledge of what the dream was in the first place to interpret it. Supernatural. Again, victory of God, the power of God breaking through. Then in chapter three, we have Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego being persecuted, thrown into a horrible fiery furnace where bricks would have been made because they won't bow down to worship Nebuchadnezzar. What happens? God shows his power, not just being able to save them from the fiery furnace, but in the fiery furnace. How does he do it? By getting into the furnace with them. Wow. Are you keeping score? I make that so far. God three, Babylon zero. That is the point of this book. It's to encourage us. God is in control. He is going to win his victory, even when it seems totally against the odds. That's the title of this message. Our God is unstoppable. And so there's hope. There's hope for all who will humbly align themselves with what God is seeking to do in the world. And then we come to Daniel chapter 4. By this point in the story, a few more years have gone by. Daniel starts maybe just barely 20 years old. And now he's probably in his mid-40s and Nebuchadnezzar has had Another very disturbing dream. Let's hear the first reading from Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4, 1 to 18. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations and languages that will know the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. 
As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me and that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and the interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Nezzar is a vain man. I mean, he's built a 90-foot statue to himself. He's seriously vain. And his empire, to satisfy his ego, has become massive. From Egypt to Elam, sort of near to the border of Iran today, up to the Black Sea, it was huge. And he was super wealthy. So much so that when his wife became homesick, it's said that he built her, just to keep her happy, seventh ancient wonder of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You know, guys, I just think that maybe flowers, chocolate and good old quality time will work just as well. In verse 30, we get a real insight into what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. By this point, he's like stood on the rooftop of his fortified palace, looking out over all of his accomplishment. And he says this. He says, is this not the great Babylon I have built that as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Did you notice the, the threefold repetition there? I, my, and my. This is the empire of me. Or what verse 37, which is a beautiful summary of the whole chapter, says, it is walking in pride. Because he's walking in pride, Nebuchadnezzar cannot see all the impression, oppression, suffering, the injustice that's being done so that he can be satisfied, so that his comfort level can be increased or sustained. He also can't see that in any moment it could all be taken away from him by rivals coming up, by a coup, by his own death. It reminds me of a story that Jesus told. It's recorded 
in Luke chapter 12 in this first century biography written about the life of Jesus. And Jesus describes a rich farmer who goes and just accumulates grain and more grain and more more stuff like that and builds bigger and bigger and bigger barns to hold it all. This guy's happiness, his hope, his security, his sense of significance, value are all caught up in this stuff. Jesus' point is it could be taken away from him at any moment by fire, by theft, by death. And ultimately the guy dies. Jesus calls that man a fool for living that way. I believe that God would be looking down on Nebuchadnezzar and seeing him as a fool for hoarding and accumulating all this stuff which would ultimately be lost in a moment. He's building his life on sinking sand. Are you in danger of making the same mistake? You see, Nebuchadnezzar had prosperity but he didn't have peace. See, if Pride is ruling in your heart. Peace cannot reign. Look at how Nebuchadnezzar begins the chapter, Daniel chapter 4. It's an announcement to his whole empire of his conversion, his salvation, if you like. And he begins it by literally in the Aramaic here. It says, peace be multiplied to you. The prosperity bit, that's that's not a good translation. He's saying, peace be multiplied to you. And we see here a really extraordinary parallel to another miraculous turnaround conversion, the Apostle Paul, who goes from being killer of Christians to great preacher of the Christian faith. And when he writes his letters in the New Testament, they always begin with grace and peace, peace from God our Father. This is this is how he writes. This is what's available. This is for those who seek to trust in God. This is the most important thing. Grace that God could save them and peace, peace, peace be multiplied to you. Look at verse 27 as well. Verse 1 to verse 27. They're they're matching in the sense that it's about peace again, not prosperity there. The peace, this inner restoration of peace that comes from following God. Now, you might be thinking, though, Nebuchadnezzar, he is an idiot, you might be thinking. Well, when you see Nebuchadnezzar in scripture, you're actually looking at a mirror in a mirror at yourself. You are the proud king who wants to be in control, who seeks to build an empire to satisfy his own ego and insecurity and sense of comfort. We all are. And we don't want to hear the truth about that. That can be so hard to hear. And it was tough for Nebuchadnezzar to hear as well, because he's had this dream, but he doesn't go to Daniel, who's got experience and proven credibility interpreting dreams. What does he do? He goes back to his wise men again. Why? Because he doesn't want to hear the truth. He knows Daniel will give him the truth. I just want to hear it, which itself is a symptom of pride. It's so hard to see pride in ourselves. I want to take some time now to just stick the scalpel in a little deeper and trust that God's going to do some divine surgery on us as we start to expose the problem more for him to heal it. So here's a 10 question examination. The first question is, do you assume when someone is preaching that you know something? So you kind of switch off like this topic of pride, that's not for me, that's for that person, that's for this person in the church, it's for their. Or if a preacher starts talking about the cross or, or the gospel again, you're like, well, I, I'm already a Christian, I don't need that. Hold on a moment. 
the or one of one of the most on fire for God people in history was Martin Luther, and he said that we have to beat beat the gospel into our heads daily. Why? Because we forget, we slip back, we we backslide, and we start to live with the performance approval mindset. Do you know a, a, a Christian brother recently said to me? He admitted how easily he found it to walk past the cross of Christ and not to see its magnificence. Question number two is, are there certain jobs, tasks in the church, in your workplace, maybe uh, in your family, your responsibilities that you just think are beneath you, you shouldn't have to do? You're too good for them. Or maybe question number three you tend to assume you're right. Do you do that? Do you go into a situation of conflict and you just think, I'm in the right here? Question number four, do you consistently need to teach people things? There's like more time spent you know, uh, in small groups and life group meetings where it's just your voice. Question number five is, do you talk about yourself too much? Question six, do you find it hard to admit that you are wrong? follow-up question to that is when was the last time you sincerely said I am sorry question seven is do you constantly need approval and affirmation I think that many of us are actually building statues to ourselves okay not 90 foot gold statues but you know we're building statues to ourselves for others to come and worship up of our careers our achievements our performance our qualifications or we're building statues to ourselves on social media, carefully manicured presenta- presentations of our of our image, our, our likeness. I've heard that some people, they go on Zoom calls, but they want to hide their camera. And their reasoning is more to do with the fact they don't want people to see them without makeup or, or in their true natural state and habitat. It's pride. It's pride. Pride is often driven by poor self-worth and a sense of shame, being ugly, feeling worthless. I suspect actually that Nebuchadnezzar had some daddy issues, maybe understandably so, it doesn't excuse his sin by the way, but he had a dad, Nabopolassar, who was almost certainly off abdicating his fathering responsibility so he can go build an empire and now his Nebuchadnezzar learning to do the same thing and try and fill the void the ache that's missing inside him to try and make himself feel significant to impress his dad to please his dad to live up to his dad's memory and reputation I wonder what is that deep ache inside of you that drives an almost addiction like need for approval Question number eight, are you unable to receive criticism? When someone criticises something about you or you've done, do you just jump on the offensive kind of, do you go on the attack? Do you kind of criticise your opponent? Question number nine, do you find it hard to submit to authority? The final question, number 10, are you holding a grudge? In the sense that you think, the other person is 100% wrong and to blame and you're completely innocent rather than the truth being that it's a little bit of both of you and um, you need to own your part. If you can't say yes to any, if not all of those questions, then you're, you're in real trouble.
It could be as well, though, that your pride is kind of a false humility. And this isn't so much a proud looking down on others, although there are certainly elements of that. This is more a proud looking down on yourself. It's the inner critic. It's a sense of self-worthlessness and an attack, self-loathing that comes. And it's an outworking of pride because this person, they would believe that they can be so much better. They should be so much better. And so they're criticizing themselves for not living up to that proud ideal. Whatever your pride is, I want to say there's hope. There's healing available in God. Verse 37 says that those who walk in pride, God is able to humble and humble and transform in the same way that he did Nebuchadnezzar. You don't have to live a life of humiliation now and eternal humiliation in the future if you humble yourself. How do we get to that point, though? That's point number two, the good friend. And that leads us into our second reading from Daniel chapter four. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heaven leave. It's you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It's the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as he was commanded, to lift the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel is a good friend to Nebuchadnezzar. I don't think I would have been. My temptation would have been to get my, get my own back. This is my moment, you know. This guy, this great kind of tree and his empire that's growing up, breaking into the heavens. He's going down. I think that's how I would have interpreted the dream. To the guy who's ripped me up out of my homeland, separated me from my flesh and blood family, who's, hey, castrated me. We think that he and his friends were made eunuchs. I I would have said, like, you're going down, Nebuchadnezzar, hooray, come on. 
But getting your own back in that kind of way is just really a manifestation of pride, a bruised ego. Daniel's just way too humble for that. In verse 19, he's upset for his friend. He says, I wish this dream was for your enemies. Wow. Daniel, over the years, he's become a good friend to this great sinner. He should have, you know, he should have been his enemy. This, I tell you, this is the spirit of Jesus, the ultimate friend of sinners who loves his enemies. See, we're all Nebuchadnezzar's really in this story, but God wants to make us humble like Daniel. Daniel is a good friend. He speaks the truth in love. We see here many parallels of the prophet Nathan coming to challenge David over Bathsheba gate. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and Bible geeks can explore the overlap there. Daniel interprets the dream, but he doesn't interfere with it. He doesn't uh, increase or decrease the good or bad in it. There's hope and there's challenge. And then at the end, verse 27, there's an invitation to avoid humiliation. Break off your sins and act righteously. Show mercy to those that you have oppressed. And if you do that, you, you might be okay. Peace will be restored to you. The peace you're longing for, you get. But if you don't, God's going to hand you over to the beastliness of your sin. You're going to become animal-like. I think here of the devolution of this character Smeagol from Lord of the Rings, who through, through his own sin and idolatry and pride over the one ring that he allows to control him, turns into this beastly creature, Gollum. It's easy in our friendship witnessing to make one of two types of errors. We can either beat people up unpleasantly with sin and with judgment. And I've certainly done that before. There was a time when I naively wore a T-shirt I got on a mission trip that said, there's no parties in hell, just one big barbecue. Ugly understatement. I am so sorry. That is a, a wrong, offensive, unchristlike way of witnessing. And if you're listening and you've experienced that, I am just on behalf of the Capital C Church so, so sorry. That's not the way things should be. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum of the mistake we can make in our witnessing is to present only a kind of sugar daddy God of sentimental love who gives me stuff, makes my life happy, a little add-on. No, 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 that is not the God of love. That's not really love at all. This God must be able to get angry, righteously angry about sin and the evil and the hurt and the harm it's causing to the people that he loves. Otherwise, he's no God really worthy of our worship. We must let God be God and not be ashamed of him. Here's another set of errors that we can fall into. We can, because of an earnest desire, maybe kind of the the desire to be a good Christian, we can kind of rush to tell someone the gospel too soon and almost kind of vomit it all over them. Or we make the other set of mistakes is that we, we never really tell them the gospel at all. We never get to that break off your sins moment for fear of rejection or loss of friendship. We've got to listen to the Holy Spirit and trust God for his timings. It's about 20 years before Daniel has this deeper conversation 
with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I'm not saying, like, wait 20 years to say anything um, of any real deeper substance. Now, there's something special about this because this was a king and there was a kind of prophetic dream interpretation moment. But what I am saying is don't lose heart in playing the long game. Did you get that? Don't lose heart in playing the long game. And also, know this, no one is beyond God's reach. God can get to Nebuchadnezzar. He can get to anybody. Daniel patiently and prayerfully waits for his friend to come through to faith. Some 20 years and that then there's an extra 12 months after this interpretation of the dream. Then there's the, the seven months or seven years, depending on how you want to interpret these seven times um, that are described in the dream. He waits patiently for his friend. What about you? Are you still seeking to make them an enemy? Is you still seeking to fight for your rights? I tell you, we're, Dan- we're meant to be like Daniel. He doesn't fight for his rights. He lovingly fights with all his might to see his friend come to faith. He surrenders to God, the God who's in control, and all of his contempt through his humility becomes compassion. And he learns to love the people that God God has placed him with. God is in exact control of where you are right now, the exact place where you live, the exact place where you work, if you work. So who has he put you with? Who are the Nebuchadnezzars in your life that God is calling you to love? Daniel was a good friend to Nezah. In the seven times of Nezah's absence, Daniel doesn't seek to steal the throne. He just keeps the seat warm for his friend or he stays around for a really difficult power struggle going on. He stays in order to serve his friend upon his return. That's humble, loving friendship. And that's genuine friendship out of which the gospel, gospel fruit will grow. Now, I want to take some time now to be a friend to you and to say this. Don't put a plaster over your sins. Take them seriously. The language here is literally break off your sins. I mean, cut them off. Uh, get rid of them. Kill them off. Gouge them out. And it's sins plural. It's not break off your sin, but sins plural. There are so many sins that grow out of our pride. Some we see, some we don't see. So we must break off the pride that we do see. Break off your desire to be king. Break off your desire to be in control. Break off your desire to find that. that. Break off finding value in accomplishment. Break off seeking to build the kingdom of me and start taking sin seriously. Sin is perhaps the most horrible of all evils. It wants to rub your face in the dirt. It wants to make you animal-like. It wants to destroy your life. And the way out is to look up. To find 
humility through seeing God. That's what happened for Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 34, it says, he looked up to the heavens and what his sanity was restored. Like the prodigal son seeing the father enabled him to come back to his senses again. This is the final point, the most important of them all, the awesome God. Seeing him is the key to restoration. Let's listen to the final part of Daniel chapter 4. Reading from Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like the ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand and, or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the, for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. All too often we are too busy proudly accomplishing things to stop to see God. And what you need more than anything else in your life is a vision of the awesomeness of God. Nebuchadnezzar had one. He saw that God is sovereign. God is in charge over the kingdoms of mankind. God is in control. And I am not. God is eternal and I am not. God is everything and I, despite all of my accomplishments, am nothing. Unlike me, God alone is just and perfectly righteousness in all of his ways and no one has the right to question him. That was Nebuchadnezzar's confession, his repentance, and it brought him peace. The deep inner peace he'd been longing for. And if it becomes your confession, it'll do exactly the same thing.
Through confession and repentance, Nebuchadnezzar is broken and remade. It's like he goes through the baptismal waters or the waters of the flood, this dew of heaven that's described in the dream. There's judgment and there's mercy, but mercy is triumphing over judgment. God gets his man. God is unstoppable. His grace is irresistible. And so if he is knocking on the door of your heart, the best thing that you could ever do right now is to open the door to him. After a significant period of time, this seven times, God, in his grace, gives Nebuchadnezzar his old job back. This is miraculous if you think about it. Imagine that there was a newspaper, said the Babylonian Chronicle or just the media that we have these days. And the stories, think of the stories they would have written about this crazy king crawling around along the ground like an animal and his disgusting, like, you know, curly nails that have grown up and his disheveled hair and his just leathered scale like skin. That guy, no matter what happens, he's never going to work in a normal workplace again, right? Well, wrong. God intervenes. God puts him right back. Wow. This tells us that our God is the God of second chances. Never underestimate what he can do with your confession and repentance of sin. There's second chances available in God, I believe, today for those who feel like they messed up through porn and it's, it's taken away kind of their impact for God over years of their lives. Or just plain and simple, lukewarm Christian living. There's a second chance. There's a second chance. How, why? Because God is gracious. When we turn from our sin, wow, the doors that he can open up. Oh, how I wish that we would look up, that you would spend more time looking up. Job did this, another character from the Bible. He was looking down on his suffering and pitying his circumstances for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter until God breaks in with question after question after question to humble him and to get him to look up. Where were you when I made the foundations of the universe? How many times, Job, you tell me, have you awakened the dawn and brought the sun in, moved the the moon around and, and done all this stuff? What creatures have you created, Job? Come and tell me. This humble Job brought him back to his senses, confesses his proud presumption and he finds peace. Isaiah also had a vision of God. He saw the Lord seated on the throne, the holy, 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 almighty God. Until that moment, he'd been looking down uh, at dis- in dismay at the moral disarray of the sin in his nation. Now he was looking in at his own sin and God was teaching him that before corporate revival can come, it must start with your personal renewal. He sees the awesomeness of God and he cries out, a curse upon himself. Woe to me because I'm a man of unclean lips. And in that moment, cleansing comes, compassion from heaven. His sin is cleansed and he is commissioned to go and speak for God. Or think of Peter. 
one of Jesus' closest disciples. There's a time when Jesus says to him, let's go out and, and fish and go out to these deep waters. Now, Peter, I think, would have been thinking, I'm an experienced fisherman. I know they're not going to bite. This is the wrong time of day. The circumstances aren't right. The weather, the weather conditions are wrong and all of that. But because Jesus, you've said it, I don't expect anything to happen. But because Jesus, you've said it, we'll do it. They go out and they catch the biggest haul of fish I tell you, they've ever seen in their lives. So big it's going to break the nets. Another boat has to come to help them to bring it all into shore. Seeing God in Jesus Christ, seeing God's supernatural sovereign control over all aspects of creation, where the fish are moving, brings Peter to his knees in confession and repentance. And he says to Jesus, get away from me because I'm a sinful man. How does Jesus, how does God respond? With invitation. I think he got, I imagine him getting down on his knees with Peter and reaching out his hand to him and saying, Peter, Come, follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. I'll make something supernaturally significant out of your life because you're willing to humble yourself before me. Wow. Wow. And Jesus, God, he's holding out his hand right now to you. This time is from the cross. At the cross... God became totally and utterly beastly, beastified with your sin, with your pride, with all the wrongs that you are aware that you've done and all the ones that you don't even notice. He was so disfigured with sin on the cross that said he was barely recognisable as being human and he did it for love that you would know without a shadow of a doubt that he loves you and that he wants you and that if you trust him all of your sin goes on him so it doesn't come on you you get to experience the peace the inner peace the joy of being in right relationship with God and others freedom from sin forever wow but sometimes there's one little area where pride kind of holds out here and it's this that I still get to believe that what I think about me, myself, is more true than what God says. I'm still ugly because of my sin. I'm still bad because I've done that. I'm not quite good enough. No, God, you're not, you're not quite right when you say I'm beautiful, I'm clean, I'm lovely. And, and pride is at work there. And there's that, a need for us to confess and repent from that aspect of pride. If God cleanses you from all sin, then you are clean. <laughs> he gets to have the final word because he's God and, well, he's God and you're not. God sees you the moment that you confess your sins as absolutely lovely, as absolutely beautiful, as absolutely holy, as absolutely righteous, as absolutely perfect in his sight. Don't hesitate. Nebuchadnezzar had everything and discovered it mattered for nothing. And when he found God, he realised he had truly everything that he ever wanted or needed. And because... He was now only really living for God and not himself. That's what qualified him to become king again. See, God, 
God humbles the proud, but he shows favour to the humble. Church, those of you listening, will you humble yourself? Will you look up and see God? Will you die to the kingdom of me so that you might be able to rule in the kingdom of heaven forever with God, with the church? I pray that you will. The moment that we do that, we get the opportunity to become Daniels and to do the things that Daniel did. And church, if we become a massive group of Daniels together, we will become like our God, unstoppable. And we'll see God do extraordinary things through us for his glory. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you came down from heaven to earth to meet us where we're at. You're the God who stoops, who gets down on his knees with us in our mess. Lord God, to counsel and speak to us like a loving father does to his children. And I pray now that you would be speaking to each one of us, Lord, helping us to turn from our pride, to die to the empire of me so we can live fully for the kingdom of God. Come and root out sin in our hearts, clean us up, that we might be fully available to you, Lord, that we might be used mightily by you, that we might be good friends, great friends to those who need us, those you want us to serve all around us for your kingdom and glory, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.